there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before. And it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. You know what a parable is. A parable is a story that's used to illustrate an inner state. They're also called analogies sometimes, allegories, analogies. Uh, an analogy is when you have something that is relative to something else and you compare the two things. They're not the same thing, but you can compare them. And so, in a sense, a parable is something that's it's a story, that's, a simple story that's told in an outer way that points to something inside that's not so easily seen and understood. But the thing about understanding parables, and I love parables, I've studied parables for a lot of years, and I really enjoy them, is we have to know who's who in the story. If we don't know who's who in the story, it's difficult to make sense of them. The story will stand on its own just as a nice little story, but we can't really get the inner meaning. And that's a lot like oysters for dinner if they're not shucked. They're not very good. You know, have you ever seen oysters that are not shucked? They're ugly. They're really ugly. I mean, they're not very appetizing. I'm not so sure that oysters, once they're shucked, are really appetizing either, come to think of it. But people eat them. The, the, one of the work parables, uh, we mentioned another one in, the other, in, a, in a light podcast, the magician and the sheep. But one of the work parables that we're going to talk about today is the horse, the carriage, and the driver. It's a parable that the work uses. And Gurdjieff was very clear that it was important for us to know what each one of those things meant. And even more importantly, their right relationship to each other. So you've got to know who the driver is. You've got to know who the horse is. You've got to know who the carriage is. And you've got to know how they're related to each other, what their relationship to one another is, what their proper relationship to one another is. If you don't, the parable is a nice story, but it's not going to make any sense in the work sense, in an internal way, and it won't give you its force. That's what this is really about. See, if you don't shut the oyster, if you don't get that oyster open, you're not going to be able to get the force of that oyster out of it. You know, okay, there may be a pearl in there, but mostly there's not. But you open the oyster and, and you can get its force out of it. Its force happens to be its life. So if you eat the oyster, you are eating its force, its life. And you're taking it into yourself and you're making it your force in your life. This parable is the same way. We'll talk about this this week and also next week because there's a lot to it. As we are in this parable, you remember the parable, there's this driver and he's got his horse and his carriage like a taxi. They use this, this is back in the days of horses and carriages when they told this parable, when Gurdjieff used this parable in the work. Now it would be a taxi cab. But we'll stick with the, we'll stick with the horse and the carriage and the driver because it works. So the, the horse and the carriage are outside. The driver is in the bar. They called it the, the public house or the pub in England and Europe. But we're in America, so we'll call it a bar. We'll say the chauffeur, the driver, he's in the bar and he's drunk. He's just in there drinking. He's spending all his money 
drinking. So he doesn't have any money to feed the horse. So the horse is starving to death out there. And he doesn't have any money because he's spending all his money drinking and he's in there in a drunken stupor. He doesn't have any money to paint the carriage, to fix its wheels, to grease the, the axle so that it'll go. So it's in bad shape and the horse is starving to death and the reins are all broken and in pieces. But he, he, doesn't, he doesn't even know that. He doesn't even care about that. He forgot all about that. He's so drunk and he's been so drunk for so long in the bar, he's forgotten all about the horse and the carriage. As we are, the driver is not on the box of the carriage. So there's a carriage has wheels and it has a box where, and then it has a seat up on top of the box where, you, where the driver can sit. And if he's got a pair of reins, he can direct the horse and the horse can pull the carriage to go wherever he directs it to go. So that's the way it's supposed to work. But as we are, the driver is not on the box, he's in the bar. The horse is not properly fed nor rightly harnessed to the carriage and the carriage is in bad shape. This is our condition. This is our state. This is the state where we find the work or, from my perspective, the work finds us. I don't think we find the work. I think the work finds us. I think the work attracts us through magnetic center in the same way a magnet attracts metal filings. It just draws us to it. You were drawn to it. You didn't draw it to you. From my perspective, the larger attracts the smaller. It's like the gravitational field of the sun has our, all these planets in our solar system orbiting it. It's the main force. The other planets have an effect on one another, the orbits. But the main force is the sun. So this is the condition. Why? Because the driver's in the bar spending his money on drinking, not feeding the horse or caring for the carriage. The driver needs a shock to awaken him. He must be shaken out of his drunken slumber. He must stand up. He must move himself out of the bar. He must observe the horse and the carriage. And he must climb up on the box. So that's what has to happen. That's a lot of stuff. This could take some time. And this is why in the work it says, this takes a long time. This work takes a long time. He'll never get a fare until he takes hold of the reins and he's done what he can for the horse and the carriage. Nobody is going to hire this guy to take him anywhere because they go by and they see this horse and this carriage and the horse is starving to death and the carriage is all broken down and the reins are all broken and there's nobody on the box. There's nobody there to take him anywhere. So nobody's going to try and hire that cab, are they? But if somebody comes along and they go into the bar and they find the driver and they shake him, slap him around a little bit, wake up, come on, wake up, you're a, you're a driver, right? You're a cab driver, Don't, shouldn't you be out there? Your horse is out there starving to death. What? what, you, what? Leave me alone. You know how people are when you try and wake them up. You know how you are. Look at how you are with me. Oh, thank you so much for waking me up. Now, I hardly ever hear that. <laughs> I hear a lot of other things too. I'm identified. I don't like you. You're too mean. You're too harsh. You're too this. You're too that. You know, it's like, yeah, well, it takes harsh steps to get somebody slapped out of a drunken stupor sometimes, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we see it happening to somebody else and say, well, you're so gentle with them. Why were you so hard on me? <laughs> the object of this work 
is to reach real I through the long inner path of self-remembering and work on oneself. In this parable, there's the horse, there's the carriage, there's the driver. But one of the things we haven't talked about in the parable is the fare, the person who hires the driver to take him somewhere. And that's the master. The master represents real I in us. So in this parable, the master is real I. There's much to do to get from the drunken stupor to a real fare with master directing us. We must attain unity. No I that we know or that we can observe right now has the strength to give us unity by subordinating all the little eyes inside of us into one whole. They're just, we just don't have it. We don't have what it takes. So our first task is to try and find something in us that can start to make some sense out of this multiplicity that we are, out of these, all these different eyes and all these different wills running in all these different directions. Or as one of our questions in the light podcast was, you know, I want to cancel debt, but there are all these other eyes that don't want to cancel the debt and say, I have every right not to cancel the debt and I shouldn't cancel the debt. But there are these eyes that want to cancel the debt. Right. So how do you deal with that? That's what this work is about. We have to attain unity. We progress through several stages and they're stages just like first the first the grain and then the grain sprouts and then it grows and then it puts forth a blade then puts forth an ear then it puts forth grain in the ear so you have a progression a natural progression well there's a natural progression in this work as well an internal progression first you start off with observing eye you have to designate one eye in you that grasps some of these work ideas and that values them and has some emotional feeling for them. You designate that eye or that group of eyes as observing eye. You say, okay, you observe the rest of these eyes. That's your job. So you start off with observing eye. Then if you're fortunate and you work and you're diligent in your work and you're sincere and you're genuine, you will end up with deputy steward, which is the next step. And then the next step after that, if you continue to be diligent and work, then you end up with steward. And finally, and this is a long way from us, so, but, we'll, but we'll mention it. Finally, there is master, real eye, who can direct the whole slew of eyes inside of us. But we don't know what that is right now. First, we have to awaken from our drunken sleep in the bar. Realizing that we're asleep. So if the driver just realizes that he is asleep, if somebody can come along and trip over him and he wakes up just for a moment and looks and he notices that he was asleep, realizing that he's in a drunken stupor, that he's in a bar, just that in and of itself often is enough to get somebody motivated, moving. When you began to see that you really were asleep, that it wasn't just something that I was saying, you began to have a little motivation. Like, whoa. All right, remember, I'll think back. Think back to the time that I had you. You were, gonna, you were supposed to remember yourself every hour on the hour. So every time that the big hand hit the 12 on your watch or the clock, you were supposed to remember yourself. And if you noticed 
between then and some other time in that hour or the next hour, maybe 10 hours later, that you had not remembered yourself, that you had just slept right through that whole hour, then you were supposed to splash cold water in your face. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And people took little coolers and water bottles with them and everywhere they went. And they'd look at their watch and they'd throw water in their face. And some people had egg timers on their belts. You remember? They, they, the little egg timer would tell them, oh, you better remember yourself. It was like, okay, well, that's good, but try and remember yourself without the artificial sweeteners, you know, the egg timer and like that. So try, try to remember yourself. And so when you started to see, what you started to see from that was that you sleep a lot and that you don't know it. But trying to wake up showed you and convinced you that you slept most of the time. So realizing began to help you to try to awaken. Now the carriage represents the body, but we can't start there. The reason we can't start with the body is because it doesn't work. Just that simple. It just doesn't work. But there are lots of teachings that do start with the body. The problem with it is, that, is that if we start with the body, it could put us into a deeper sleep. Now, I'll explain that in a little bit. But right now, what I want to talk about is, what is the driver drinking? Well, of course, we all assume that since he's in a bar, he's drinking alcohol. No, 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 no. There are people who are sound asleep and in a drunken stupor who have never tasted alcohol. What, in this parable... What the driver is drinking, or at least one of his favorite drinks at happy hour, is imagination. He's having this, you know, there's a zombie, there's a vodka gimlet, there's a martini, there's a highball, there's this and there's that. There are a lot of different drinks in a bar. He's having imagination. That's one of his favorite drinks. So when he goes into the bar, instead of saying Budweiser, Schlitz, or uh, Martini, very dry, or this or that, he says, an imagination, please. Make it a double. You know, uh, you know, do you want that on the rocks? No, straight up is fine. I've had a hard day. Okay. He's drinking imagination because it's one of his favorite drinks. And it supports imaginary eye. Imaginary eye is the belief that he's unchanging, that he's full of will, and that he's fully conscious. In other words, that he can do anything he wants to do, that all he has to do is set his mind to do it, and he can do it. You'll see, just by what I'm explaining, that most everybody we know is in the bar. Most everybody we know is absolutely, let me see, it's a nice way to say this, plastered <laughs> on imagination. They're plastered. You know, if they're given a field sobriety test, they're going to fail it. And this work is a field sobriety test. Touch your finger to your nose. I am touching my finger to your nose. No, your hand is in your pocket. Don't tell me where my hand is. And then you get aggressive and nasty. And that's why field sobriety tests are given by people with guns and handcuffs and radios that they can call for backup because we get aggressive and nasty in our drunken stupor. The problem of esotericism is always the same. How to awaken man from the state of sleep and make him realize that he's asleep. This has always been the problem. Thousands of years. How do you get man to realize that he's asleep and awaken him from his sleep? How do you do that? And it's a tough question. And a lot of people have given their lives trying to get man to realize that he's asleep and that he needs to awaken from his sleep. Because, as I said, given a field sobriety test, there are some very nasty drunks out there and they would kill the person giving the test if they could. And it happens. 
it's a it's more of a calling <laughs> than something that people just jump on as like, oh yeah I want to go and wake people up who are asleep that's not a good idea now not only asleep but wasting force in falsity and violence we're not just asleep if we were just asleep okay you know you wake up you remember Jesus told the disciples that, well, our friend has fallen asleep, and he meant Lazarus. And they said, well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. <laughs> what are you worried about? He, so Jesus told them plainly, he's dead. And they were all sad, and then we're going there. So we're going there. And they were all like, well, yeah, but you can't go there because, you know, all the sleeping people are waiting for you. They're going to kill you. They're trying to kill you. They're so upset that you're trying to wake them up. They're going to try and kill you. So don't go anywhere near that place. He said, no, we have to do it because of our friend. And so there's that parable story, which kind of goes along with this one. But you see that we're not just asleep. We're wasting our force in falsity and violence. We can get very violent when someone tries to shake us and wake us. We can get very violent. And we're living, we're squandering our force in falsity, in this lie that we're fully conscious, in this lie that we are able to do, in this lie that we have will in this lie that, we, that we're a unity of being, that we're unchanging. All forms of teaching are useless unless the driver awakens. Teaching will go into imagination and increase the state of sleep. I can't tell you how often this happens. This is the hardest part of this job. Now you remember, I've been doing this for nearly 40 years. I have seen a lot of people try to awaken. And I've seen a lot more people try not to awaken. And the truth is, is that trying not to awaken usually wins. Very few people really awaken and stay awake, relatively, comparatively. And it's because many, it's because all forms of teaching are useless unless the driver awakens. The teaching goes into imagination and it increases the state of sleep. You can be told you're an angel in heaven and you'll believe it and drink more than ever. A little bit of reflection will show you the truth of this. What would you rather hear? Something flattering or that you're a dummy? What would you rather hear? That you're a king's kid or that you're nothing? What would you rather hear? That you can do it or you can't do it? What would you rather hear? The story of the little choo-choo that thought it could? Or that you're just the dummy that can't. <laughs> what would you rather hear? Well, it doesn't take a lot to see what we would rather hear. So the thing, and this is my example is, is that you can be told you're an angel in heaven. You believe it and drink more than ever. What does that mean? It means that you will imagine more and more and more. It increases the state of sleep by increasing imagination. This work gives us nothing flattering. You can't find anything flattering in this work. Think about it for a minute. We're machines with no real eye. Oh, that's not very flattering. Nothing but pictures of ourselves. All we have is a gallery of pictures of ourselves, of how wonderful we are, and all the awards that we've won, and how strong and beautiful and brave and handsome and, and intelligent we are. Just pictures. We have no real will. We're a mass of contradictions. And the contradictions are hidden from us through buffers and padding. There's nothing really flattering about this. There's nothing exciting about this. Nothing really cause us to run out and meet that. 
Oh, there's a circus in town and it's telling everybody how what machines they are. There's a circus in town is telling everybody that they're full of imagination. They have no real eye. There's a circus in town is telling them that uh, they all they are is just they, that all they think about themselves is just pictures of themselves. When we realize that we're mechanical, we get a shock. When we realize, not when we hear it, when we realize we're mechanical, we get a shock. When we hear it, we don't always get a shock. Some people do, but not always. Some people get the shock of resistance and violence where they violently deny it. I remember somebody wrote to me and said, I'm not a machine, and I don't like you saying so. Okay. Really, they were really vehement about it. I go, okay, fine. People are not machines. People are people. Okay, fine, have it your way. So when we realize we're mechanical, we get a shock. We don't realize we're mechanical, we just get denial, we get angry, we react. There's a difference. Now, it may only be an uneasy feeling, but it's the beginning of awakening if it's nourished because it's the truth. You see, the beginning of awakening, whatever it is, if it's the truth, if you nourish it, if you water it, if you put some fertilizer on it, if you feed it, if you stir it up a little bit, it will, it will grow because it's the truth. The truth about us will grow. The lies about us are doomed. That's why the false personality is working so hard, because it knows it's doomed. And so it's got to work 24 hours a day to keep the facade going. It's like, the, it's like in The Wizard of Oz, the man, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I am the great and powerful Oz. And the little dog Toto runs over and pulls the curtain away. And you see this old guy back there and he's pushing levers and speaking into this big microphone and it makes his voice all boomy and everything. And it makes this, all the smoke and the mirrors and all this stuff. But here's just this little old man back there and with all the levers and mirrors and smoke and the boomy voice and everything and the microphone, the amplified voice. But the truth was, that that was, that was a picture of false personality. See, that could be used as a parable. It's a picture of false personality running things behind the scenes. And it's all running it, through, running it all through a big lie, through illusion and lie. All awakening has a sour taste. When you begin to awaken, you're beginning to remember yourself. Not imaginary I, but real I is our truth. Real I is our truth. We are very far from our truth, but we can get closer. But unfortunately, what we have to put into our mouths at first may taste sweet, but once we start to digest it, it's sour. The truth about us and our situation is sour to us at first, but it's sour because we have been drinking the sweet, sweet, sweet drink of imagination. And our palate has become so accustomed to that, that real food doesn't taste good to us. Real nourishment tastes sour to us until we adapt to it, until we can clear our palate of the false sweetness of imagination. Now, oh, that was good. Just thunk that up on the spot. We so love our suffering, our sadness, our disappointments, our negative states, and that is where we start. Because we so love them, that is where we have to start. Well, why? Well, because this work demands sacrifice. This is why sacrifice is demanded by all religions and all gods. But we have misunderstood what it means because we could not understand it esoterically. We took it in an outer way, in a lower way. 
We took it literally. Oh, we have to go and kill our enemy and cut his heart out while it's beating and offer it to our stone god. You know, the Aztecs or the Mayans or whomever. No, 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 no. You missed the point. We need to make a sacrifice. And the heart of it is because our sacrifice has to be something we love. The problem is we don't love anything real now. All we love is false. So what we're asked to sacrifice is what we love so much. Here we have something to sacrifice so the direction of our love can change. See, the direction of our love now is self-love. It's the direction of our love. We love ourselves above all else. We will sacrifice others all day long for our self-love. But if we begin to sacrifice what we love, it then changes the direction of our love. See, we intoxicate ourselves with our own suffering. And then we can't listen to other people. You ever noticed, with those of you who have worked in nursing and in hospitals, that in nursing homes, that people can talk for a long time about their surgeries and their, you know, their, their problems, but they can't listen for a long time about somebody else's surgeries and somebody else's problems. They want to talk about their own. They, you start to talk about yours. They got one better than yours. Oh, yeah, well, that's nothing. Oh, that reminds me of the time that they cut my head off and sewed it back on. You know, they've always got a better story. There's a reason for that. And the reason is because we're intoxicated. We intoxicate ourselves with our own suffering. And that's why we can't listen to anyone else's. Because we dwell on our own, either openly or secretly. So you may not openly say, well, that's nothing. You think that's, you think that's a big deal? That's nothing. You should have seen what... We may not say it, but we think it secretly. We compare ourselves with other people. Well, huh, they had to put up with I, what I put up with. They'd really know something then. It's a form of imaginative drunkenness. You can see that, I hope. The driver must begin to think. First, we hear a voice saying things over and over without noticing much what's being said. We're dreaming of other things. You know, we're, we're in the bar and we're drinking imagination and we're dreaming of other things. But we hear a voice off in the distance. But we don't really know what's being said, but we hear the voice. And, you know, when we keep drinking. But we have to think. But we, we aren't thinking, we're drinking instead. But we hear the voice. And it's just saying over and over again something, over and over again. It's distant, but we hear it. And like I said, we're dreaming of other things. And after some time, something falls on, an, on our ear. Or something falls on the ear of the sleeping driver if we want to stick with the parable. Yes, he thinks. That's true. Now, you can relate this to yourself. You've heard things said, and one day you, you hear it said and you say, yes, that's true. You've begun to think. Instead of drinking all the time, he moves to thinking and drinking. And this is how it starts. Still in the bar, the horse is still starving, the carriage is still unrepaired, but he's not yet aware of that. What he's aware of is this voice that keeps saying something over and over again. And he says, yes, that's true. And then he has another drink. And then later he hears the voice again. He goes, well, I, I, I remember that. Well, that's right. And then he has another drink. And he's still in the bar. His thinking isn't strong enough to become emotional and get him to his feet yet. To make him go out the door and look for himself. 
and see what his own inner state is. Look at the horse with its ribs sticking out, you know, barely able to stand. Look at the carriage all broken down and disrepair with paint peeling and flat tires. He's not able to do that yet. He doesn't have anything emotional behind what he's thinking. The driver eventually must climb up on the box. Well, as you can see, mostly people are a long way from climbing up on the box. They've got to sober up first. There's nothing worse than a drunken driver trying to climb up on the box. Before he can go up, he must go down. This is one of the problems that we have. We can't drive from imaginary eye. We can't drive from false personality. In other words, anything in us that thinks it can do, we can't work from there. Because anything else that thinks it can do comes from self-love. Because, let's face it, we think we can do everything. We think we're one will. We think we're wonderful. We think we can do anything if we just put our minds to it. The problem is we just don't put our minds to it because, well, it's not that important to us. Or we'll put our minds to it later. All the other lies that we tell ourselves. See, we'll never be able to drive from pride and vanity. We're only going to be able to drive from what's lowest in us. When we think we can do it, we break things. I don't know how many times I've seen this happen in real life. People who think they can do something break things. Here, let me fix that. Let me get that nut off of there. Let me get that bolt off. Let me get that bolt unloosened. Snap. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people just through brute force break something instead of intelligently ease it off. Have you ever seen that happen? Well, have you ever done it? How many times have you stripped things using more force than brains? We must act from the most simple and humble, sincere and genuine place within us. We have to say to ourselves, I will drive. Now, you will notice that this has a lot to do with the same thing I have you say is, I can work. Say it, say it, say it. I can work. I can work. Yeah, I will drive. I can work. Same thing. In the parable, it's I will drive. In, the, in, in, in other things I've told you, it's I can work. I will drive, but I will drive must come from the delicate understanding of something else being necessary. And it is a delicate understanding. I will drive if it comes from, I will drive. It goes right to pride and vanity. It goes right to false personality. It goes right to all the wrong things in, in us. It falls in the wrong places. But if we have a delicate understanding of what's really necessary, our nothingness, humility, and realize that we have to have outside help, then... That delicate understanding, that balance can help us to say, I will drive with a little less bravado and a little more intelligence. Where are you going to drive? You have to be told. And then, then after you're told, you'll have to obey. Now, first of all, hearing is not something we do that well. Obeying is something we do even worse. If you look at our condition, the driver in the bar, drunk on imagination, in a drunken stupor, what are his chances of getting all the way out there? Slim. It's going to take a lot of work. To do, in a work sense, means to obey the master, who may suddenly appear in the carriage when we've done what we can. Next week, we'll talk more about what we can do. This week, what I wanted to talk about was this work parable and how it relates. And basically the condition of the driver. I don't think we really understand. See, okay, so we know the carriage is the body. But 
we can't start with that. We've got to start by waking up the driver. And then we're going to have to do something about the horse, aren't we? I mean, even before the carriage. We've got to save that horse's life, right? Yes. So you've got to put things in order. You've got to have a priority. There's got to be a necessary priority. And so next week we'll pick up on this and talk about it some more. We've put together a website to go along with the podcast, solidrockvista.com. You'll find there a thoughts page where I write thoughts about the work and how it applies to our daily life. I'd like you to read as well as listen.